Oh, I finally got my copy of Health Communism in today. Hell oh, yeah. Right. I, I got mine the other day, and the first thing I did was I went in and highlighted where my name was. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Honestly, I would twice. probably do that. Do that <laughs> I, I didn't actually do that, I, but you know, still. It was cool uh, to actually have my my name in a book. I thought that I, I felt very special having yeah. you know help contribute to that project. That's that's a big thing to be proud of. I uh don't know if my copy has arrived or not because I discovered a video game called This Gym of Mine. Uh <laughs> and so I've been kind of shirking on doing things like taking out the trash <laughs> and checking the mailbox to play this Pokemon game that is fan-made where you get to run a gym and develop a town that you live in. <laughs> really? Is it fun? Is yeah. that a play? Is it using some of the similar systems to like this war of mine? Is that why the name is like that? <laughs> oh, I don't know. I've never played or seen this war of mine. So I don't think so. No, it's definitely not a survival game. Okay. Um, it's more like a, it's more like a Sim City but you also have Pokemon battles and you build a team. And like you start off there like you have to theme your team. So what type of gym do you want to run? And I was like, ghost type, obviously, the most badass. Uh, <laughs> and then I wandered around the map for an hour and a half before I finally figured out where ghost type Pokemon spawn because you can't open the gym till you have a team of three. <laughs> so by the time I open my gym, I'm way over leveled. I have my like level 30 drift blim crushing these level five Rattatas, just owning them. <laughs> John's gym just thrown into immediate bankruptcy when the Ghostbusters show up. Yeah. <laughs> is your is your gym worker owned? Uh, mm, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not really sure how that stuff works. I know I have to pay the guy uh, who helps me build buildings in the town a whole lot of money for building plans. So uh, mm. the economy of this game is murky. Uh, is it single player? Yeah, it's single player. Oh, okay, yeah. It could definitely stand to have an online version, though. I was thinking that, about that while I was playing. Um, speaking of murky. I had to spe yeah, speaking of murky political situations. number one uh fan video game review podcast my name is john i'm dan and i am lena and we are an entirely listener supported show so thank you so much for any money you might be giving us on patreon which is a great place to hear all of our bonus content if you're not in the discord go ahead and get in there it's completely free if you are a patron and you don't have stickers yet just message us on patreon and if you want to help the show a little bit more you can leave us a five-star review on apple podcasts or you can make work stoppage your name in this gym of mine the premier pokemon <laughs> fan game about running a Pokemon gym. <laughs> as, as John said, we are pivoting to becoming a, uh, a podcast about user-created video games, so we will mm -hmm. be discussing Sanic Ball today. Sanic Ball, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, don't forget to tune in to the Patreon for all of our RPG Maker series, which is quite <laughs> extensive. 
That's all right, right. So I have to let y'all know I'm quitting the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> just, just kidding. But uh, no, but I mean, what we are going to be doing is we're going to be following up on the ALU uh, election in Albany, where unfortunately the workers did not win their union vote. But, you know, I mean, like the amount of oppression that was going on here uh, really was was pretty criminal. And uh, at the very least, we have seen calls for not just a or not a re-election, but a bargaining order. Yeah. So, uh, like, you know, we've been following this election for a little while. This is the third attempted uh, union election for the Amazon Labor Union following the you know historic stunning victory at JFK 8 earlier this year and then shortly thereafter by an unfortunate loss at the LDJ5 facility also in Staten Island so yeah we've been we've been following this campaign by workers at this facility just outside Albany ALB1 which was on track to hopefully become the second you know unionized Amazon facility, but unfortunately, the voting occurred last week, and it came out pretty resoundingly against the union. The final vote count was 406 to 206 against the union, uh, so, you know, about a 66% in, uh, against the union, and that's based on a, about a two-thirds turnout for the 950 employees at the ALB1 facility. And so, obviously, this is very unfortunate. We're sad to see the the election loss, uh, and I mean, who better to talk about it than ALU interim president Chris Smalls, who set, put out a statement saying, quote, we're feeling both anger and disappointment that the voting process wasn't free and fair. It was a sham election where workers were subjected to intimidation and retaliation on a daily basis. Even the workers who volunteered to be election observers were faced with threats of intimidation, end quote. And so what he's talking about there is that in addition to all of the standard bullshit that Amazon does at all of these things to to bust unions, you know, uh, flooding, bombarding every single worker with notifications and messages through their in-company app that they have to use to to every day with messages telling them to vote no, captive audience meetings, one-on-ones, flooding the stores with managers – fear-mongering, all all the stuff that we always see from Amazon. In addition, what Amazon did for this election is they added a new wrinkle to their union busting where workers who had been picked to be observers for the union vote, you know, to watch, to be familiarized with what the rules are for NLRB elections and to watch to make sure there's no chicanery or anything. So the union had picked workers to do this and immediately prior to the actual voting, Amazon then told all those workers that in order to act as election observers, they would have to use their own paid time off or unpaid time off, both of which are, in ext- as we've you know, talked about before on the show, are in extremely short supply for Amazon workers. So it, it is not a trivial thing for them to just use like a day or two of like, you know, a full eight hours of paid time off or unpaid time off either way. And so that essentially made it, it became a really impossible choice for many of these workers who wanted to help out, who wanted to be election observers, but who were concerned that they would be retaliating against and, and either be forced to use their, their unpaid time off or potentially run the risk of discipline if they didn't have any. 
Yeah, well, and what really perturbs me about this this tactic that results in a in a lack of uh, election observers is that it doesn't just you know show a, a lack of strength from the union in the face of Amazon or at least perceived on the day of the election, but it also like gives Amazon a lot of latitude to go ahead and just tamper with the results in the first place. If there aren't other observers around who know the rules, it's going to be pretty easy for Amazon to get up to some chicanery, as you called it. Right. Well, and I think that another thing that's important to point out here is that the company itself probably had election observers which were paid to be there. And by saying Mm. that you couldn't be an election observer on the side of the union and be paid is showing a specific retaliation against workers for union organizing and wanting to make sure to certify the validity of the election itself, uh, which I guess from my perspective is retaliation and illegal. And it puts the ALU in a really tricky spot as well, because when Chris Small said that thing, like it was a sham election where workers were subjected to intimidation and retaliation on a daily basis, uh, the company makes claims like that about the union all the time, completely baselessly. And everyone in the media and a lot of people nod their heads sagely. And then when the union has evidence and rightfully calls out the company for this kind of thing, uh, unfortunately, the reception in the media is that, oh, these workers are hysteric. You know, you see that yeah, quite often. It's, it's treated as sour grapes. It's just mm-hmm. like, oh, these folks lost. They're just uh, complaining because – and they never bother to actually discuss any of the, the union's allegations or whether or mm-hmm. not they're true. And, and like, yeah, I mean, so Motherboard, which is, you know, part of Vice, interviewed ALU lawyer Seth Goldstein, who said, quote, it's specifically in the election agreement with Amazon that no one's supposed to be penalized for that time if they are an election observer. So now we don't have an election observer, which, of course, makes it look like the union is weak and can't protect people's rights. Amazon is running the election, end quote. And that's really the, the truth of the matter. Yeah, I mean, this tactic really does kind of seem like the Pokemon evolution of the Bessemer ballot box, mailbox scandal. Yeah. Yeah, because it's like, oh, well, we're not going to do this one specific thing Mm -hmm. that we know we could get ruled against. We'll just do every other tactic we can come up with. Uh, and, And I mean, like... The New York Times also reported that in addition to this, they did things like they disguised like union busting consultants as new hires at the facility and then had them go around and tell workers that the ALU couldn't negotiate a contract and therefore that the workers shouldn't vote for them. Oh, my God. Like, (laughs) how how do you do, my fellow pick and packers? (laughs) Yeah. Because that's one of those things is if you follow like the ALU on Twitter, you'll see them tweet out pictures of like this person is a union busting consultant. Mm-hmm. And if you just scroll through it, you don't really read it. You might just think, oh, well, you know, they're just, you know, they're like doing the name and shame thing, which is which is good to do about people whose entire career for some reason they have chosen to attack workers and their ability to organize for. But it's also because like it's a means of like community defense to be because Amazon is specifically disguising these mm-hmm. union busters as employees to the point where one worker said he was suspended after complaining that one of the union busters was following him around and harassing him. Like, wow. It's it. The, this is the thing, like to exactly what you're talking about, John, like the disparity in the way that this is discussed. Like if the union 
tried to do anything like this. Like if you had somebody, a union organizer who doesn't work at the facility, disguise themselves as an Amazon worker and come Mm -hmm. in and start telling people to join the union, that person would get arrested. Right. Well, it's crazy. Yeah. And they were also got to be a lot harder to spot, you know, because workers could look like anything. It's a lot easier for a union buster to disguise themselves as a worker than it is for a cop with a high and tight haircut and only one pair of shoes to disguise himself as an activist or something. Uh, And then in addition to this, so following up on this, uh, we hear from more perfect union that the ALU intends to challenge the results of this election due to the aforementioned interference from Amazon. And in a twist, like Lena was gesturing towards earlier, uh, from the losses in Bessemer and at LDJ5, they have not asked for a new election, but instead for a bargaining order saying that Amazon has so damaged the environment of ALB1 with their illegal union busting that a fair election is impossible the union had filed over 25 ULPs against Amazon at the warehouse in the run-up to the election, which it's like, I do really appreciate the strategy of just saying, like, look, this is basically the third time around, so let's just go for it. Let's not try to, like, take a half measure that feels like a compromise. Let's win or lose this, you know? Well, and that's what we talk about very often when it comes to these union-busting tactics and how blatantly illegal they are, and yet the company is just forced to, I don't know, try it again, uh, when in reality they are just going to go about the exact same illegal activity when we know that they are, they always do, Mm -hmm. and uh, to to say that that we need another election is really just calling for another, you know, undemocratic, you know, process, which would to, you know, at least from our perspective, say that they must concede, the the company must concede, and then the workers should just be handed their union and a bargaining order be issued. Yeah, well, and I yeah. mean, this is, it's got to be much easier for Amazon to exert control over this facility because it's smaller than the other ones that we've talked about, right? This only has about a thousand eligible workers compared to LDJ, which had like 2,000 compared to the original Staten Island, which was many, many more than that? I believe LDJ5 is is closer to this one in size. Okay. Like, I believe they each employ several hundred employees, like around 1,000 or less than that employees. And then, yeah, JFK8 is enormous. It had, like... They ha- it has, like, I think four or 5,000 employees, okay. so... Nearly the same um, thing with Bessemer. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, I mean, to your point, Lena, I think it's, it's, it's a, like, this is, is, is as much an acknowledgement of just the facts of how union elections are in this country. It's like, yeah, continuing to say we want a new election when we know the election process is broken, like... I don't know that that's going to be like the most effective thing. Whereas instead laying out the myriad ways in which the whole process is systemically weighted in favor of the company. And that even with that, that's the other thing that's always wild is that even if Amazon didn't break the law in any way, if they followed the law entirely, the system would still be rigged in their favor. Mm -hmm. And so like, I think it's better to just acknowledge it as, as basically what these workers are doing and just point out, it's like, look, we followed the rules. These motherfuckers never do. They break the law in every single election because there's no punishment for it. And they're going to keep doing it until there is a punishment for it. And probably the most effective thing you could do to actually incentivize places to stop breaking the law would be when they do, which they do in every election, to, as they're recommending, force the company to bargain with the union. So, 
yeah, I think it makes perfect sense for, for that to be their demand here. And, and so like Chris Smalls finished out his statement after there, just igno- like acknowledging that it's like, look, the battle against Amazon and to organize it is, is across the whole country. So like he closed out saying, quote, most of all, we're filled with resolve to continue and expand our campaign for fair treatment for all Amazon workers, end quote. So, you know, I mean, disappointing as this result is, it's one engagement in a long <laughs> nationwide campaign. And, I, and, and also, I think importantly, this loss does not mean that the union drive in Albany specifically is, is over at all because there, as we can see, there are hundreds of workers in favor of that and willing to even vote for it despite all of the union busting. So like, I mean, there's no reason organizing can't continue there while this, you know, a request for a bargaining order is processed, even if there is that year delay before they can hold an election again. Absolutely. Absolutely. And also last week we had covered the uh, the Cisco workers who had been on strike in Boston and uh, in Syracuse. And we had mentioned that the Syracuse workers had taken their or they had voted for their contract that had no concessions. And the Boston workers have now signed their new contract. Uh, their local 653 voted 215 to 2 to approve their new contract, which included many wins, but there are, you know, just one or two caveats in here. But let's start with the victories that these Boston Cisco workers have gotten through their struggle. Uh, the the deal that they signed uh, gives the workers an immediate five degree, five degree, uh, an immediate five dollar an hour raise for all workers and a further six dollar an hour raise over the length of the five-year contract so it is a little bit of a long contract Mm -hmm. but i mean that will bring the base driver pay to 39 dollars an hour uh in 2027 Workers also forced Cisco to back down from the plans to ditch the union's health care plan for a more expensive one, and workers also won improvements to their overtime pay with the addition, well, and to have the addition of MLK Day um, added to their holiday list. But, you know, it's not everything that they, they didn't win everything. Uh, Their pension contribution plans did get tampered with. Uh, there was an interview with some workers on the in these times article and said that you know the workers are not quote are, are quote not popping corks because of the disappointment in uh in not being able to extend the pension the pension plan further well before we move on i i i think it's really telling that the pension plan was the thing that the company really wanted to hold out on um and i i think it's really illustrative of like why pensions are no longer really much of a thing in this country anymore is because like they are a really secure way to make sure that workers are taken care of after they exit the workforce. And, uh, you know, to, uh, I guess, capitalist like vulture brain, that's somebody asking for a free lunch somehow. Yeah. I I mean, and, and this is one of those things where it's not perfect. Like you can't, we can't say with this contract, unfortunately, unlike the one in Syracuse, that there are no concessions here, Mm -hmm. but like, the healthcare cuts that Cisco was trying to do to these workers to kick them off the, the union healthcare plan and onto a private one were going to be huge. That was going to be really bad for the workers. And like an immediate $5 an hour raise, like that's a, that's a $10,000, like a year, like salary bump on, on a, on that's on just on a normal 2000 hour scale. Mm-hmm. And so as we've seen from some of the shifts that the drivers work, it's actually probably a decent chunk more than that. So, 
Like it, yeah, it's it's not perfect. Uh, obviously, the the a lot of these workers would have liked to keep that pension plan, but the all the other stuff that they won at the same time, like better health care plan, big ass raises, like, and that's the other thing though that I think is important is that this isn't like a ten thousand dollar bonus. That's a one time right. thing. It's an actual five dollar an hour raise immediately. And then essentially like a, a dollar ten-ish a year every year for the rest of the contract. That that's a big long-term win for these drivers. So yeah, it's not perfect, but they did win a a lot of gains for the workers in this contract and significantly better than the contract that Cisco was initially offering. It is easy to see why it passed by a better than 99% margin. Yeah. And just to add another like more weight to to this, like this is also not like a strike where everything's been hunky dory out on the mm-hmm. picket line. As we've reported like last week on Monday, workers on the picket line in Boston got attacked by the cops and a dozen of them were arrested you know, as the police attempted to prevent the workers from being able to have an effective picket line as we've seen them do at so many strikes uh, across the country. Um, and, the company also, you know, has been doing that standard thing of bombarding workers with mass texts, trying to convince them to scab, while at the same time bringing in supervisors and managers from other parts of the country to keep the place running. But uh, it, as far as I could tell from any of the stuff I read, I didn't see any indication that their attempts to get people to scab worked at all, at least from the, like, with the messaging to the Teamsters. I mean, they use all their supervisory personnel, but still, uh, I think that while, you know, this... It's not a 100% everything that the workers were asking for. I think considering the difficult conditions these workers were were striking under with the level of oppression, and when we take this collectively as well, like because, again, this was multiple strikes at the same company. In Syracuse, in Boston, there was even some workers who I think had a one-day strike in, like, Arizona, and they want to raise too. So across the company... I think we got to say like this collection of strikes was very successful. So I think that's pretty impressive, especially because Cisco is not, Cisco is not a small company that's like easily pushed around there. As we mentioned, they're like, I think the biggest food service corporation in the country. Like, so uh, yeah, I mean, would have been ideal to also keep the pension benefits, but I think the wins in wages and healthcare benefits will make a real difference to these drivers. And so like, I think that ultimately the workers were able to get quite a lot of wins. And so overall, this remains a victory for, for workers. Absolutely. Well, as long as we're talking about strikes that ended, let's talk about Kaiser Permanente. And I'm going to be honest with you, the way things were going, I was starting to think this was going to be a Permanente strike. You know what I mean? <laughs> hey, but uh, 2,000 members of the National Union of Healthcare Workers did vote to end the longest mental health care worker strike in U.S. history after 10 weeks. On Friday, October 21st, workers voted 1561 to 36. Not a lot of close election results in today's episode <laughs> no. in favor of ratifying a new contract with Kaiser Permanente after the mayor of Sacramento stepped into the dispute as a mediator and they won a new four-year contract which includes core worker demands of two additional hours per week for each therapist to perform their patient care duties which Kaiser had re- previously refused to accept and additionally the contract requires Kaiser to hire more therapists to mm-hmm. allow patients to have a more reasonable wait time between appointments 
movements and to reduce the crushing overwork current therapists face. And you got to give it up for these therapists. Who better than a mental health professional to be able to tell you overwork is a serious problem and should be a priority for workers (laughs) to get rid of it? (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, Yeah, like... That was the really great thing that I mean, because I was like scrolling through the articles, like trying, I'm like, because there was not a lot of details about the contract when they initially announced the end of the strike last week. And that was really the big thing that I was looking for, because as we talked about when we covered the beginning of this strike, like unlike so many of the, or at least unlike the way these strikes are always portrayed in the media, attacking the workers, oh, these people just want more money, which is a totally good demand for workers to have since they're not paid nearly enough doesn't really matter what your job is as a worker. Mm -hmm. Um, But, like, the core issue here was never wages. Like, not that – I mean, these workers do, of course, deserve to be paid more. But, like, the core of this strike, the reason that you had the longest healthcare worker – or mental healthcare worker strike in history is because Kaiser just refused to hire more people. They refused to provide enough therapists for what patients needed. And this is, I think, a perfect example, this strike, of what we mean when we talk about the fact that any labor law reform that has any real teeth is going to have to be enforced by workers because the state's not going to do it. Because that's something that we talked about when we first talked about this strike was that California has a law that they passed, I think it was like last year, very recently, that requires there to be a, a, a legal minimum of the amount of hours or the amount of like days before somebody who's in, gone through like a mental health crisis can take before they get access to mental health care. And repeatedly, Kaiser's just like, well, we don't have enough people. We can't meet that law. <laughs> it's like, well, yeah, then you're supposed to hire more people until you can. And they just refuse to do that. And so, again, this, but now, now that the workers have actually taken them like, on strike, they've now forced the company to actually obey the law. Like, cause it, well, of course we want them to hire more therapists because we want the workers to not be overworked and we want there to be enough people to provide patient services. But additionally, like, I, I think this is such a, a great example that it's like, uh, yeah, we want pro worker reforms. We want better laws that, that ostensibly, you know, will get better outcomes for, for workers. But, Time and time again, we see that the the people who end up actually being the ones who have to enforce those laws are the workers themselves. And this is, I think, another example of that. Like uh, Jennifer Browning, who's a clinical social worker in Roseville, California, told the Sacramento Bee how the changes in their new contract will make an impact, saying, quote, at a time when there are so few appointment cancellations because we're seeing patients remotely, giving us enough time to perform all of our patient care duties is going to help a lot of us at Kaiser. And it's going to help Kaiser hire more therapists. End quote. <laughs> Help Kaiser hire more therapists. <laughs> Force yeah. them to, which is, yeah, I, I do like that little turn of phrase. Though. I also kind of like how this illuminates that uh, they had previously, like before the pandemic and now the shift to online appointments, that the workers had relied on patients' cancellations to have time, which right. is really bad for time management for the workers when basically any amount of free time is volatile and up to you know someone canceling. And so this hiring of many more workers is going to mitigate that even if there are patients who do go to more in-person uh, situations, there's still going to be that time set aside for the uh, the therapists themselves to do the extra work that they need to do. Yeah, 
And so, like, a couple other things from the contract that are also wins. The union forced Kaiser to accept the formation of labor management committees to take worker input on changes to improve conditions for workers and patients. And they also are, they are, despite this not being the core issue, they are going to win raises and better ones than Kaiser was offering. All workers will get an immediate 4% raise and 3% raises each year following. Of course, you know, these are not larger than current inflation, which sucks, but... The, the again the primary aim of the strike was to force kaiser to hire more therapists and mm-hmm. this succeeded in doing that so the fact that i think that they were able to get all these other wins shows that this 10 week strike was extremely worth it and in addition to all that the benefits they're going to see on the job the benefits that, that the patients are going to see with more therapists out there meaning they can get a, uh, a an appointment they can get the care they need sooner quicker better turnaround in addition this sort of a strike, you know, again, longest mental health care strike in history, I think is going to potentially like really see long-term dividends for the union and for all the members. Like, I, and I think this quote from a, a Santa Rosa-based therapist, Natalie Rogers, who to- told KQED, I think this sums it up saying, quote, I think that we have formed a unity like no other. I think that we now know what we are capable of doing if we stick together. We will have the support from one another that we need to help push Kaiser to where we feel our patients will get the best care, end quote. I love that these mental health professionals are recognizing the labor of their fellow workers and like standing in solidarity with each other for their own mental health. I mean, like, who would know better necessarily, well, I, mean, I shouldn't say who would know better, but like, you know, these people know very well what a what the work situation does to someone's mental health. And so it very easily uh, facilitates their solidarity with one another. And I think that that is very cool. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So moving on to our first totally new story of the week, uh, we actually had two teacher strikes in Massachusetts over the past week. Uh, And they actually face, one of them at least, face quite a bit of opposition from the state that everybody is always caricatured as like, uh, Taxachusetts is one of them, or just people that think like Massachusetts is some like progressive communist state or something. Uh, very much not true, and this, well, these these strikes well, are a really good example of that. Where do people think uh, tax dollars go under capitalism? <laughs> you know? Yeah, no, I know. <laughs> it's just that that standard caricature. But so, uh, over the weekend of October fifteenth, representatives from both the Malden and Haverhill Education Associations, the teachers unions in those towns, announced that they would authorize strikes on Monday the seventeenth due to failure by both towns to negotiate with the teachers in good faith. And so, like, because both unions had been at the bargaining table for months without progress. And it's not too surprising when you find out that Massachusetts, like many other states in the U.S., bans its public employees, which includes teachers, from going on strike. So, you know, it's it's not probably not too surprising then that these like city employees, the administrators in charge of the school are just like, well, what leverage do they have? They can't strike. So, you know, not too surprising. They didn't have much incentive, or at least they didn't think they did to actually come to the table on these issues that the workers cared about. Um, and one other key thing though, was that the, despite the fact that again, the strike was illegal, the Massachusetts teachers association, the statewide, you know, representative body for the, the, teachers union actually did back both strikes, uh, which basically agreeing with the, the teachers that 
the intransigence of both towns was really hurting the students. So like, <laughs> I do love the idea of a statewide public uh, servants union being like, it's okay, do a little crime. You can do a little <laughs> crime. <laughs> yeah. Hell yeah. I, well, and it, it, and the thing is, like, people would be like, well, I'm, and that's cool to hear a, a statement of support, but it's just mm. a statement. It was an expensive statement, <laughs> and we will we'll discuss that. But like, uh, so first. We'll talk about the strike in Malden because it was the shorter of the two. So Malden is a it's a suburb of Boston in like the north end of the city. Uh, and so 700 education workers walked out Monday the 17th, issuing a statement saying, quote, We acknowledge the disruption our strikes can cause, but we can no longer in good conscience see our students receive less than they deserve and for educators to be continually disrespected as professionals, end quote. And <laughs> once again, we've seen, you know, that teacher strikes don't usually have to go on that long to have a really powerful impact. And these workers were only out for one day Mm -hmm. (laughs) before winning a significantly better contract than the one that they had been offered by Malden public schools. But Uh, I mean, literally the, it's it's just funny because like uh, a big part of the reason teachers have that much leverage is because class sizes are too fucking big. So every teacher mm-hmm. that goes on strike, that's like 30 households that now have to scramble to take care of their kid during the day. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and also, I mean, that's that's also a good point because this strike is happening during the school year where I mean, right. there are a lot of other contracts that generally are, they tend to show up like, you know, right at the beginning of the school year so they can either delay the school year starting or maybe, you know, try to get resolved before the school year starts. But this one happened during the school year, which definitely causes that exact disruption that you're mentioning. Yeah. And so just after one day, the Malden teachers won a better contract than they'd been offered by the school. Uh, 97% of the union voted to ratify the new three-year contract, which includes major wage gains for paraprofessionals, which was one of the biggest uh, demands that the workers had because paraprofessionals, you know, folks who are so, or, or like folks who are social workers, folks who are special education teachers, helping out kids with, you know, various different needs. Those folks tend to get paid uh, nothing. Mm-hmm. It's, it's really a disgrace how little these people who are absolutely vital in the classroom, like school, schools really can't run without these paraprofessionals and yet they're paid absolute dirt. And so it's really good to see these, these teachers willing to stand in solidarity specifically with the worst paid members, you know, of the union. They also won uh, new language in the contract, which caps the caseloads of pair of, of many of these, you know, workers, social workers, psychologists, special education professionals, so that when they then determine these people are all overworked, which of course they all are, it will require the district to hire more of them. Yeah. Uh, nice. And and it really is great that they're getting that support. Yeah. Now, the strike in Haverhill was a lot more combative and lasted a little longer. So Haverhill is a, a town in North Mass. Like, it's up kind of near the New Hampshire border. Uh, and so Monday evening, when they had not reached a new deal with Haverhill and announced that the strike would continue to the next day, the Haverhill School Committee and the State Labor Board called for and were issued a temporary restraining order against the union demanding that they end their strike, saying it was illegal. In the in the order, the court claimed that students would suffer, quote, immediate and irreparable injury if the <laughs> teachers were allowed to strike. 
I he's, think that they're striking for the students in many yeah, ways. Exactly. I mean, I was just going to mention that the teachers not having the resources, teachers and paraprofessionals not having the resources that they need to support the sc- the schools and the and the kids is going to have much larger effect over the period of a 200 and some day school year compared to just a couple of days here at the beginning of the school year. Yeah, like the idea that a a week-long strike by the teachers is going to irreparably damage the students is just complete nonsense. And thankfully, the workers treated it that way. They <laughs> refused to follow the order. Uh, so teachers stayed on strike, and specifically, like, because their demands were not being met. Like, the teachers in Haverhill pointed out that they the teachers in that town make $10,000 a year less than the state average. And... But the funny thing is, is that at first the school was willing to negotiate on that issue and that issue alone, but on the issues of smaller class sizes, more planning time for teachers, and a stronger commitment to racial justice, these, you know, supposed non-economic issues as they're often Mm -hmm. referred to in these, the school just completely balked and refused. They're like, we're not negotiating on any of these. We're supposed to have, uh, you know, total say over this. Like, why don't you just accept a better wage increase and none of the rest of this? Which, again, puts the lie to that stuff, to what they say every time there's a teacher strike. Every single time they try and demonize the teachers as selfish and all they care about is themselves. They don't care about the students. And But time and time again, what do we see are the sticking points that keep the teachers out on strike? It's not wages, even though that would be a perfectly reasonable thing to stay out on because teachers are paid shit in this country. Every time it's... To help the students, it's smaller class sizes, it's, you know, more access to counselors and psychologists and nurses and all these other things that students need. That's the stuff that the teachers are always fighting for. And so it was really good to see them not stop the strike in response to these threats. Like, and, and so because they didn't stop the strike after the restraining order, the judge sanctioned them as well as the Massachusetts Teachers Association for supporting them. The judge fined both the Haverhill Education Association and the Massachusetts Teachers Association $50,000 and then charged them an additional $10,000 a day. <laughs> In response, the president of the Haverhill Education Association told news, news, local news, WCBB, that the strike would continue and the fines would not stop the teachers from fighting for their rights and for the students, which... Hell yeah. Honestly, pretty badass. I was just reading about it, and it's just like, oh, the judge is just like, yeah, well, we're going to fine you. This is wrong. You have to stop. And the, the president was like, yeah, we don't give a shit about the fines. <laughs> yeah, and that worked, actually, which is yeah. like, you know, uh, I think anyone on this show could have told you that it would. Uh, so late Thursday evening, they actually reached a deal to end the strike in Haverhill, and schools were open for Friday. Look at that, folks. Striking fucking works. Uh, so you have, again, HEA President Tim Briggs, who told WCVB that, quote, with this contract we want a financial package that represents a substantial investment in our schools closing a damaging wage gap between haverhill educators and educators in other districts we want language that addresses student safety we want language to develop a more diverse teaching force yeah and this is where i want to take the opportunity to tell the boston globe to fuck off (laughs) (laughs) because i was following this strike because i mean you know we want to talk about it on the show and also because it's pretty near me and I, so I read the globe every day anyway. Um, and they published very prominently on their website while this was going on an op-ed attacking the candidate who's probably going to be the next governor of Massachusetts, Maura Healy, because she didn't come out and attack 
the Haverhill teachers for <laughs> doing their illegal strike. They're just like, oh, this was such a wasted opportunity to show that she hates workers. There's, I don't. The, the argument was basically it's the same bullshit year every time. It's like, oh, these teachers are going too far and they're hurting the students, putting their interests before the students. It's just complete bullshit. Um, and, you know, <laughs> these teachers were on strike for like four days and they won better contracts that are going to help them and are going to help all the students. And the only thing the Boston Globe saw fit to do about that was attack them. And that's fucked up. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, I mean, classic classic capitalist press, you know, always against the worker. Yeah. yeah, yeah and I mean, I always hated the Boston Globe. I'm more of an Emmys guy. <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, the students were out there on the picket line with the teachers. Once again, another thing where they're like, oh, mm-hmm. they're hurting the students. The students are like, no, we agree. <laughs> the students are like, we love this. No school, and I get to support my teachers in a way that feels like it matters. <laughs> yeah. Holy so shit. I just really wanted to highlight these because, like, it's rare that we see unions come out here and take a stand when it's illegal for them to strike. Because, you know, Look, I'm thankfully they were clearly able to absorb the sixty thousand dollars in fines, but like, that's a lot of money, and it's it's tough. To, like, if you when you have a judge threatening you, it's like this is illegal. Mm-hmm. And also the fact that not only did both of these local unions do that, but the fact that the statewide organization was willing to come out and openly say, knowing that in the event of a long term strike, they would be fined for it, that they supported them, like. This is the sort of solidarity in the face of unjust laws we need from unions all over the country. So great job by these teachers in Malden and Haverhill. Hats off for these incredible successful strikes. Absolutely. And I think that this doesn't happen without the, you know, intensification of struggle that we've seen over the past year. I mean, I think that, you know, there is a chance that the union would have been, uh, you know, supportive enough of the workers to actually stand up for their rights to strike. But with all of the attacks on the right to strike that we've seen and all of the different workers going out and, and protesting, whether it be at Starbucks or, or you know, at Amazon, at the Inland Empire or, or any other places, that show of power has, you know, brought some additional consciousness to some of these organizations. I mean, when we were watching the labor notes conference earlier this year they were talking about how some old union older unions are hesitant to do things like these illegal strikes and it really does take that you know kind of more grassroots the independent unions showing and leading the way for these things to even happen and so this is not only a victory for these teachers and their ability to strike you know against unjust anti-strike laws but also shows that you know the these people who have been out there on strike in other cases are really empowering every worker and showing examples of how that solidarity really exists in our society. Hell yeah. That's right. So speaking of government institutions trying to make strikes illegal, mm. yeah. uh, we're going to take a quick detour across the Atlantic to I got strikes going bad, on in France. As I was going to say, we got some bad news, folks. We're going to France. <laughs> yeah, put on your yellow vests and prepare for some liberté, égalité, and fraternité. Please keep both hands inside the vehicle at all times. Uh- <laughs> yeah, so, you know, we've talked a, a decent amount, I think, now about the strikes going on in England because of the crisis, mm-hmm. the crisis of, of cost of living. But this, like, is hitting, you know, the capitalist world broadly, but Europe especially very hard. 
And it's hit France too. And now, you know, we've seen a convergence of several recent strikes that have threatened to you know, coalesce into a more general uh, like level of uprising. So like this past week on October 18th, over a hundred thousand workers walked out across France in protest of stagnant wages and a crisis in cost of living all across the country. Uh, these were called out by the uh, General Confederation of Labor in France, the CGT, and they were aimed at forcing both, you know, capitalist bosses as well as the French neoliberal state to actually listen to workers' demands. And so, like, inflation in France is significantly lower than in England. It's only, quote-unquote, 5.6%, mm. <laughs> largely due to state intervention in prices. Wow. What a shocker. <laughs> That, that can work. You're saying uh, the price controls are effective at curtailing <laughs> the down the downturns of capitalism. Wild <laughs> that that could happen. But they didn't it's, even it, accompany it with a wage freeze. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because again, France has a cap on energy prices mm-hmm. and has subsidies for fuel, and so since energy prices are the thing that are driving some of the inflation, although profiteering is most of it that has had a major effect in keeping inflation from being quite so bad in France as in so many other places. But simultaneously the wage increases in France have only hit an average of 3.5%, which means workers are still taking an average pay cut of about 2% compared to inflation. And at the same time, French companies just like here in the U S are raking in record profits. And so one of the things that's uh, another thing that's a little different about the situation in France is so while this is hitting, you know, the poorest workers very hard, France's minimum wage is actually indexed to inflation. So thankfully, there have been some nationally regulated increases to the minimum wage because of inflation. But at the same time, while it's indexed to inflation, it's still only, like the minimum wage is still f- like $15,000 a year, which is, um, not Mm -hmm. high (laughs) like that's that's more or less equivalent to the u.s minimum wage like it's a little different because there's a lot more state supports in france you know there's their their healthcare system isn't quite as as rapacious as as ours is but still that's not a lot to live on like so that has led to a wave of strikes by workers in multiple like industries across the country and the big one that was making a lot of news is in france's energy sector Because in the middle of September, workers at French oil refineries run by ExxonMobil and Total launched open-ended strikes for the first time in recent memory, which made an immediate, enormous impact on the French economy that got to the point where a quarter of all the fuel stations in France uh, ran out of gas because this strike had knocked out 60% of the country's refining capacity. That is a lot of power being shown there. Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> um, and after three weeks of the strike, the neoliberal government under Emmanuel Macron uh, basically decided, fuck this. Uh, we can't deal with all of our refining capacity shutdown. And so, you know, as you would expect from a social democratic European government, they told the companies they had to negotiate. Oh, wait, no, that's the script for what they should have done. Mm. Uh, so... What Macron did, as, as, as is fitting his political ideology, is he issued a national back-to-work order for the refining industry, threatening workers with six months in jail if they did not end the strike. Wow, cultural like strike-breaking. Yeah. Reagan moment. <laughs> I'm just imagining that, like, like French 
government officials like talking to Americans just tearfully. I learned it by watching you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so like uh, a lot of this is coming out of a really good article by uh, Cole Stangler in the nation. And, and he interviewed a worker who was out on the, the, during the big protests last Tuesday, Jerome Paria, a air France worker who said, in response to what the, the government is trying to do, quote, they want to requisition our comrades. The right to strike is under attack, end quote. And unfortunately, the pressure from the state and from the media, because the media in France, since the, the fuel prices have gone up, have and, and have, there's been a lack of, of availability, has been really viciously demonizing the workers from striking. Basically, you've got... For, the whole spectrum of like these workers are selfish to some of the stuff that we see now because of the war in Ukraine. Like these people are just playing into Putin's hands and all this other bullshit. It's literally so insane to levy those kinds of accusations against the workers too, because it, they can be so easily dispelled when the workers say, we just work here, (laughs) you know, we we just want more money or better benefits or to not be worked so hard or whatever. We don't allocate the gas. Also, I mean, that's (laughs) to say that it is the responsibility of all of the workers to support, like, international war. Right, that's basically what they're arguing. (laughs) Yeah, it's it's ridiculous. Um, But unfortunately, due to that pressure, uh, and and there was, I was reading about this, unfortunately there was starting to be a turn in public opinion against the striking workers, Mm -hmm. the media, the ideological state apparatus, as well as the annoyance with being unable to find fuel did seem to be having quite an effect. So most of the workers have gone back to work in the refinery sector. All the, all of the Exxon mobile workers signed a new contract where they did get a 6.5% raise, which is above inflation and significantly higher than what was previously offered by Exxon. And most of the workers at total have also agreed to go back to work. Also winning significantly better raises this time of 7%. Uh, However, there are some workers with the CGT, which is one of the more left wing of the uh, trade union confederations in France. They are still on strike because their demand was a 10% raise, not only because they hadn't gotten a raise in a while, but as they pointed out, they're like, these companies are making record profits. They pointed out that just a few weeks ago, Total paid a $2.5 billion dividend to its shareholders. And yeah. yet they're quibbling about a couple percentage points of the workers who are actually doing all the work. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's a constant refrain of capital is that the working conditions must stay the same or get worse. There is never mm-hmm. like a, an, an allotment for a betterment of actual working people's conditions because that apparently is an affront to capital, uh, you know, which... I mean, even certain capitalist ideologies don't even buy that. But I mean, that's not the point. The point is, is that there is that inherent contradiction that will always push the capitalist class to try to reduce the the um, compensation and, you know, total amount of wages that, you know, workers have earned themselves, you know, to to be allocated to them. Well, and I really got to give it up for the CGT because in the face of all this, uh, they're still on strike at two total facilities in Faison and Normandy. Normandy demanding that workers get a share of these historic profits that executives at Total and their shareholders are taking in for themselves. And the CGT isn't stopping there. They also announced that they're going to stage national days of protest on October 27th and November 10th in order to demand higher wages for all French workers, which I don't know how that works within like 
French labor law or whatever, but it's fucking rad. <laughs> yeah, and this this also came at the same time that workers in France's nuclear sector, which is a very big part of their energy base, also went on strike mm-hmm. and won better contracts than they were previously offered. They are getting immediate uh, 5% pay raises after they voted to end their strike last week. And so, yeah, it's kind of a mixed bag. Like, so workers have won better wages, but not the rate that they were trying to get in most cases. And there's been a massive attack on the right to strike by the Macron government, which continues apace. And like, this is all happening at the same time. Macron is also trying to raise the French retirement age from mm-hmm. 62 to 65. So, this is definitely, a, I think, something worth watching, just the general labor situation in France right now. Because like, while the government is trying to push real hard in this neoliberal direction, and there's been mixed results from some of the more centrist trade unions, that every time France tries to raise the retirement age, that usually stirs up a huge amount of class struggle. So I don't think that like just because a bunch of these workers have gone back to work – I don't think that necessarily means that it's like the end to this current phase in the labor upsurge. Well, there. So, and one thing that kind of highlights that it's not over is that, I mean, it was just the end of last month when Emmanuel Macron said that he intends to push forward with those anti-worker reforms by Christmas. And so, yeah. I mean, I think that if anything, people are going to see an intensification of this struggle against those neoliberal policies. Yeah. So we'll definitely continue to watch the situation in France. And and definitely like solidarity with these the, the CGT workers who are still holding out on strike in, in in face of all of this. Yeah, bring France to its knees. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> so now we're gonna switch. We got a few little quick stories before we get to the the, the Starbucks segment. So we're just gonna power through a couple of these. None of them have a ton of meat to them, but it's, it's stuff that I think is is definitely gonna be worth following. So because like well, it's interesting for- you say that because I always ask for double meat at Chipotle. <laughs> 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 well, I mean, that gets us right into our first story. So, uh, you know, right after we saw just uh, back in August, we saw the first Chipotle successfully unionize in Lansing, Michigan with the Teamsters. There's now another store looking to unionize, this time in Lawrence, Kansas. And they are facing a specific act of union busting that I don't think I've encountered before and is incredibly sleazy and extremely frustrating, which is. The workers had assembled a petition from the majority of their workers to submit to the NLRB to get an election. But unfortunately, the worker had like left it on a counter in the store and then had to go, I don't know if it was to the bathroom or something else. But while they had stepped away, a manager found the NLRB petition and threw it away. <laughs> this sounds illegal. Jail. <laughs> I mean, yes. <laughs> yeah, and, and, and workers have filed a ULP against the store for destroying their petition. But, like, unfortunately, this tactic seems to have worked because, like, they mention that they had gotten a majority of signatures on their initial petition. But now, I mean, I can just explain it from this quote from, from Quinlan Muller, who's a, a worker at the store. He told Jonah Furman, quote, This is my second time drafting this petition. Initially, it was easy to get support, and over 50% of employees signed it with no hesitation. Unfortunately, my employer took advantage of when I accidentally left this document at work, and a manager knowingly threw it in the garbage. By the time I went back to work to retrieve it, our regional field leader had come in and talked with every single person who signed their name and told them worst-case scenarios about the consequences of forming a union. Now no one is willing to sign it again. End quote. 
Wow. So they did union surveillance, pinpointed who was a union supporter, and then retaliated against each of them with cap with basically small captive audience meetings or one on ones, and then intimidated all of the workers into not uh, using their right to form a union. Yes. Yeah, uh, and, uh, a bargaining order. Yeah, bargaining order. File nine dozen ULPs, whatever it takes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I mean this situation is it's completely fucked. Like it, again, this is just example after example of like just like pointing to the NLRB, being like, "You guys gonna do anything about this?" And they're like, "Well, maybe, probably not." <laughs> what if I file in triplicate? What if I stand yeah. on my head while I request you do well, something? There's like, with- well, you see this pile here that's like reaching the ceiling. We'll get back to you in six to eight business months. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that is so. uh, that is definitely the position that the NLRB is in, despite you know the increase in all of the workload because of the increase in the amount of labor uh, actions that have been being taken, including through official state means, the NLRB has not expanded at all to accommodate that additional workload. Yeah. So, you know, we'll be continuing to follow the the unionizing uh, effort at Chipotle, but I guess for now it's just like a reminder, keep everything real secret mm-hmm. <laughs> before you file. Like, and, and and don't leave anything where your manager can see it because they will, even if it's illegal, they will interfere any way that they can. And they're really scared right now because industries like Chipotle thought that they were safe from unionization drives for a long time. And speaking of industries that thought they were safe, let's talk about hardware stores where Lowe's workers in New Orleans have filed for an election with the NLRB for the 172 workers at their store. I always forget how many people it takes to run a hardware store. It's a lot. Right? I mean, like, Lowe's <laughs> are big, but yeah, I always, I, I always underestimate. I'm like, oh, what is that place? have that's probably got like 30 employees no it's a community college in there (laughs) yeah no it's seriously i mean it's probably 40 people on the clock at one time and you know you've got you know three or four times that to make sure all shifts are covered right so these workers say that they've been inspired by the success of workers at where else? Starbucks and Amazon and are organizing an independent union lowe's workers united love this just Name Workers United system. Really upfront, really clean, really simple. Uh, workers at the store told Michael Sainato that at The Guardian that their primary complaints are low wages, inconsistent scheduling, lack of breaks, and understaffing. We keep seeing that one. Felix Allen, a worker organizer at the store, said, quote, we just felt like we needed to stand up for ourselves. Folks who have been there many years are still getting paid less than $15 an hour. Personally, I can operate three different types of forklifts, and I get paid less than $13 an hour, and I've trained incoming employees. That's giving me flashbacks to working at Starbucks. (laughs) Right? No, this is exactly, I think that a lot of workers can really relate to this in that like, you know, you're, you're given additional responsibilities and you're still getting paid under a living wage. Mm -hmm. Uh, You have all of these qualifications. You're able to do all of this different work. And, you know, you got years under your belt at these places and still nothing to actually show for it in the terms of, you know, living conditions for you and your family. Mm hmm. I feel like at this point we need to just have like blanket demands in like union things that are just like, like in your job description stuff where it's like every additional piece of machinery you want me to operate is an additional $5 an hour. That's yeah. right. <laughs> yeah. Cause so, it's, it, it's a portion of a person's job that you're asking me to do. And, uh, that's not just for while I'm using the machine. That's all the time. That's once you add it to my responsibilities list. Yeah. Yeah. 
and again, this is one of those things. So these workers are making less than $15 an hour. Meanwhile, last year, Lowe's CEO, Marvin Ellison, made $18 million. And the company spent, I was amazed that Lowe's had this much money, $15 billion on stock buybacks and dividends for shareholders. Man, they really are marking up those ball peens. <laughs> yeah, well, when you explain, this is the thing. It'll be like, oh, out of this place, do that. Well, labor exploitation mm-hmm. every single fucking time. It's like, because it's, it's the thing. You'd be like, these people are making, the workers are making nothing while the bosses are making everything. It's like, well, yeah, that's, that's a causal relationship. Well, and it also, yeah. every time we highlight how much the boss is making and how much the company can give to its shareholders and use on stock buybacks and all of these other things that are not paying workers, it makes me want to like become a baseball saber metrics guy who has like a <laughs> stat card, like yeah. Lowe's, $18 million CEO earnings, $15 billion stock buybacks, average employee wage, $14 an hour, and just like go company by company. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, and I think that that might even be an overestimate based on some of the, I mean, yeah. who knows, based on, you know, maybe nationally it is that, but in many areas, uh, especially, I guess, in these places like in New Orleans, uh, wages are very low, and I wonder why. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Would it be racism? Well, so, <laughs> yep. Oh, no, never. In America? <laughs> but we elected... We elected Barack Obama. Now we're in a post-racial society. All right, that's we're, what, that's we're moving on. Me. We're not. We're, <laughs> <laughs> we're moving on to another hardware store, folks. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. When well, I say we, Lowe's, you say Home Depot. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Yeah, I mean, Home Depot uh, has you know escalated their union busting since the workers in Philadelphia had uh, filed for their union election um, at the Roosevelt Boulevard store. There have been many different ULPs. It's basically just like a, a, a cookie cutter style uh, union busting that we've seen at so many places that think that they have avoided these unions for so long. And now workers are actually, you know, finding better ways to organize and, and you know, build power. Yeah. So like Vince Quiles, who's the lead organizer for Home Depot Workers United, we quoted him before when we talked about this drive. Uh has filed a bunch of ULPs against the company for interrogating and surveilling employees because he specifically says that since they filed, the store has been filled with managers who will just not stop badgering workers about the union vote and that they have been personally following him around the store so they can monitor any discussion he has with coworkers. And this is all the same time where they're subjecting workers to captive audience meetings and, of course, claiming that workers can get everything that they want without a union and also, like, telling workers that union dues are going to, like, bankrupt them and all this this nonsense. Mm -hmm. Wow. And so, like, telling – he told the Philadelphia Inquirer, quote, anytime they have a group of us, literally any conversation that I have with people, there will be a manager there jumping in. And it's just conversations like, how's your family doing? How was that trip you took last weekend? Things you talk to coworkers about. This is like from the um, the what is it the OSS uh, interruption playbook where you, you just you just oh, bring up yeah. other things. You know, you just like make the meetings long and and you know you waste everybody's time. It's like they don't actually care how your family's doing. They, right, well, they don't like, care I- about the trip you took. I know we were discussing making sure everybody has enough to eat, but I want to talk about if Shrek 2 was woke or not. Like, <laughs> you know, there's time, yeah. there's a time for that. That's a fun conversation, but we, you can have it on your own time. Yeah, before we move on from all of the, the hardware stores, I do want to bring up something that was not mentioned yet, which is that a unique way hardware store employees are 
uh, abused by their employers is that they're often hired into a specific department because they have plumbing knowledge or ceiling fan mm-hmm. knowledge or kitchen knowledge or, or whatever, woodwork, wood knowledge, uh, lumber knowledge, for instance. But then they get transferred around to a million different departments in the store. I had a roommate who worked for Lowe's and it seemed like every week he's like, I'm in blinds now. Now I'm in lighting. Now I, I don't know anything about any of this shit. And it, it's it's got to be extremely tough to deal with because at least at other jobs like most of the time you know about the product you're selling or what you're supposed to be doing. Yeah. Yeah. So they're voting uh, next week, November 2nd, is the the start date, so we will definitely be following that election. Mm -hmm. And then one last quick note I wanted to throw in here. There was a story that came out, I think, a couple weeks ago now in Huffington Post. This is from Dave Jamieson, who's a really good uh, labor reporter there. Mm who is talking about a case that I think is like, you know, pretty similar to a lot of the stuff that we've seen so many times with, uh, you know, Starbucks, which is a case at CVS where the company essentially, you know, bribed workers to vote against a union where, so this is a court case in California where workers at a, at CVS store 9119 in Orange County, uh, who had been trying to organize last year with UFCW, UFCW Local 324. And just as basically the, the company found out about the union drive there, suddenly the store received raises for all workers to give them the rate that workers at union stores are already making. Hmm. So three weeks later, when the store voted, the union lost their election by one vote. They lost eight to nine after the company had specifically raised those wages to be the union rate. And one of the, and so like what I've just described, you'd be like, yeah, of course they did that. Starbucks does that all the time. Like all these other companies do that. The one thing that's interesting about this case though, that's a little different is that because of the discovery portion of the case, like where they actually had to go get all their evidence and everything, we actually have specific receipts that this is what they were doing because citing evidence from internal CVS emails show they showed that upper management at CVS specifically directed the higher wages at the stores because they were unionized. And the judge ruled that quote, the manner timing and size of the wage increases was to dissuade and diminish support for the union in the upcoming election End quote. And that led to the judge throwing out the results of the election and calling for a new one, which uh, CVS is currently appealing. That's so cool. And does not happen that often. I gotta say CVS must've fucked up really bad for uh, a judge to, to feel confident making this ruling, but yeah. leave it to CVS to have really long receipts. Yeah. Well, and also, I mean, this probably is, you know, highlights why it's really important for us to actually have that kind of uh, back and forth consent about these sorts of things to say, you know, yes, you can give us this this raise because I mean, as far as I can tell from this story, the uh, CVS just came in and said, all right, everybody's getting a raise, and you know, maybe people didn't necessarily complain because they're like, oh, I really need a raise, but they still were not consulted, and the the union was not, uh, and I mean, maybe they didn't even know, like the the union wasn't even public at this time, but then the CVS found out. Is that right, or um, is it still a little? vague in in the story yeah it wasn't exactly clear in the story on like those specific details but i think the thing that's like frustrating to me about the story is that like this is kind of your like 
archetypal case of this sort of thing where you though you have the very rare instance where you actually have that smoking gun evidence that like the upper level management at CVS was telling people to break the law mm-hmm. in order to defeat a union election and even with all of that literally a year's worth of time in the court system and going through countless like filings and hearings and all this what we get out of it is that the workers might get to redo the election. Yeah. So, like, I don't want to, you know, I don't want to be too much of a downer. I'm, I'm glad this ruling came out. I hope these these folks get their second election, and mm-hmm. I hope they win. But again, I, to kind of go back to what we were talking about with, like, you know, the Kaiser strike, like, the law on its own isn't really going to ever do anything for us because there's no teeth to it because they don't want there to be. So, like... I, again, I'm glad that we got this ruling, but we can't depend on this sort of ruling to enforce fair election procedures. The only way we can do that is ourselves. And and that's, I, I just think, is something that we always have to keep in mind. Yeah, so we're really hoping that these workers, uh, at the very least, get their, their due second vote and win. Uh, you know, but we will see about how that comes down. Uh, in our weekly Starbucks segment, we're going to be following up on how Starbucks had said, hey, we're ready to bargain. And, you know, they're like, oh, with their kind of calculation that maybe the union wouldn't be ready for bargaining at that time. Well, they were wrong. And Starbucks workers are ready to bargain. And it turns out that Starbucks is just walking out of bargaining meetings. Maybe not. I think that they didn't even show up to one. Yeah. Like, it's... (laughs) This morning has been pretty wild following the Starbucks Workers United accounts because it's just been example after example after example of the workers showing up ready, professional, got the laptops, got 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 everything necessary, got the lawyers there, got all the reps there, ready to go, ready to sit down and have a good faith bargaining session. And then it's empty side of the table, empty side of the table, empty side of the table because it was all a lie <laughs> as as we have kind of been anticipating this entire time. Yeah. One of the videos that came out this morning was uh, some people on the Starbucks uh, corporate side of the table uh, being crybabies and saying, but there are people coming like in here remote. Basically there are, there are Starbucks workers in person there in the meeting and the, uh, this, this, I don't know. Starbucks guy is like, no, I there there are people there on the on the laptop who are here remote, and so we're walking out. Let's go, and just like well, they walk out because there are people who are in the bargaining meeting over like over you know the internet. Uh, <laughs> yeah, which- yeah, we're walking out because you used Skype. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean the whole thing is just it's completely it's just such bullshit. Like first off. You shouldn't be able to object to any worker Mm -hmm. being involved in a bargaining meeting at all, ever, for any reason. If every single employee of that store wants to be in that meeting or wants to be there over Zoom, good. Good. That's great. Rent out a convention center for the bargaining (laughs) agreement. I love it. (laughs) 
Yeah, and and this whole thing of because it's they're just creating any pretext they possibly can to shut it down. Because it's like, mm-hmm. guess what? We're still in the middle of a pandemic. If somebody wants to attend a bargaining meeting, which is something that does not have to be done in person, there is no reason that you should be able to object to that. Because if they just want to, you know, watch out for their own health and they're worried about getting COVID, which is a pretty reasonable fucking worry. Yeah, they should be able to do that. Like it should be required that you a allow any worker who wants to be at a bargaining meeting to be there and b that any worker who wants to attend them remotely has to be able to and there have to be accommodations made for them the idea that instead you could get see workers trying to participate in bargaining remotely and use that as a pretext to leave the bargaining like is just complete ludicrous right. it's just it's bullshit and we have to remember that these bargaining sessions if you haven't seen them are in small boardrooms these are at yes. like these long tables that are meant to accommodate you know 10 to 16 people or so and and the, the rooms are only big enough to walk around the table maybe with a little thing at the end so that you can grab water like these are not large rooms and most of them are not well ventilated i mean i've been in some of these rooms and they're like uh okay do you want the door closed because if we close the door it's going to get hot in here <laughs> yeah well and it, it's also like the whole walking out thing is such a great depiction of the bad faith that the company is engaging mm-hmm. in here because it literally doesn't matter if the workers had shown up in person or all on a zoom call either way the company would have demanded the opposite and used it right. opportunistically as an excuse to leave it, exactly like yeah. and and i'm sure a lot of the wor- workers you know knew that this is the sort of thing that was going to happen. But I'm, I think it's, it, it, it shows its points for like intelligence, professionalism, all these various things you could say that they actually showed up and called their bluff because they're like, look, okay, fine. You want to drop 200 bargaining requests for the same week. Cause you think you're going to like rattle the union and we won't be able to get our shit together quickly enough. Bet. Yeah. <laughs> We'll see what happens. And they showed up and the workers were ready. And they, I think that they did a great job calling Starbucks' bluff here. Cause like they posted pictures from Chicago, Ann Arbor, and Louisville where the lawyers like didn't even show up. Like the, the folks that walked out, I think that video is from Buffalo. Mm-hmm. And, I, and lawyers also walked out of a meeting at, at like Long Beach, California as well. Like those are, of course, ludicrous, but <laughs> they didn't even show up to a lot of these meetings. It's just like, Starbucks is such a clown show. Well, it's so funny that they challenged them to bargaining as if bargaining isn't what the union has (laughs) set out to do. (laughs) Right. Exactly. So anyway, this is stupid. Uh, Like great job by the union calling Mm -hmm. them out, being ready, being prepared. And, and I think that, because I think it really makes them look like the ones who are serious about this, which they are. And so, like, I think that's a really good job by them in this case. Unfortunately, at the same time all this is going on, Starbucks continues apace with all their union busting. So, like, they, we're talking about bargaining. They canceled the first bargaining session planned for the Lindbergh and Clayton store in St. Louis and then immediately fired one of the worker organizers at the store. Uh, so workers at that store then uh, launched a walkout in protest. I think they were on strike for... I think three days over that. Um, They also fired worker organizer Alyssa White, who was formerly a supervisor at a store in Raleigh, North Carolina. And this one, I'm just (laughs) like this one. I don't even they they didn't even like try to come up with an extra pretext. They like literally just said they fired her for union activity because 
so their reason for firing her was for, quote, closing the store without notifying or obtaining approval from her manager. <laughs> but the day they're referencing is a day the store went on strike. Right. And the store was notified of the strike, which means they're saying, you're fired because you went on strike. <laughs> so, so they're telling a lie and doing something illegal at the same time. And not even hiding it. Like, even their lie. I'm like, I don't think this is an... Like, I I don't even think you're fooling anybody. No, it's like... You're just saying you're firing her for striking and just daring the NLRB to do anything. It's a lot like catching a five-year-old in front of a bunch of squiggles on the wall holding a crayon in his hand, (laughs) and he's like, dog did it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's... Oh, man. It's... This stuff is just so frustrating because, like, nobody believes, like... I, even the like psychos in the business press, I, they don't believe any of this. Oh, they we fired this person because they weren't prepared. It's like they know everyone knows exactly what's going on mm-hmm. here. But and speaking of stuff where we know exactly what's going on, they've continued their uh, campaign of store closures as well. They announced they'll be closing Syracuse's Armory Square store due to quote unquote safety concerns. Well, maybe don't build uh, your Starbucks in an armory then. Uh, i mean honestly i would feel like that would be like a really safe place to build (laughs) although perhaps different concerns about safety (laughs) but like uh, again totally coincidental that the armory square store has been preparing to file for a union election Mm -hmm. Uh, that definitely has nothing yeah real big coincidence I mean, it's just yeah, like all the other ones, but it's also just a coincidence. It's just like that Trader Joe's uh, <laughs> alcohol store that closed down mysteriously. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and one of the things, though, I wanted to highlight about the store closures is that the Democrats are enabling this. Because, like, the, the a video was provided to conservative talk radio last week where Schultz came out and blamed the government for, quote, abdicating their responsibility in fighting crime, end quote. <laughs> I wish. Which is... <laughs> Yeah, no, I know. It's but it's but this is the thing. We know the crime wave propaganda is bullshit, and a lot of workers know that mm-hmm. too. But as we approach the stupid midterm elections, the Dems have completely capitulated on the this whole law and order bullshit. I mean, like like Biden's trying to hire a hundred thousand more cops, talking about how we don't need to defund the police. We need to fund the police, and we're the real law and order party, not the uh, like we're trying to like you're just gonna try and out fascist the Republicans. A, it's not gonna work, and B, it is just making stuff like this easier because when you then go and say to somebody, well, no, that's bullshit. They're, the safety concerns is just a pretext. Well, then they can just look at all the Democratic campaign stuff and be like, well, I don't know. They say there's a crime wave. Maybe there is a safety problem. So, like, the Democrats just continue to make this stuff easier for Starbucks and worse for the workers. Yeah, it's like yeah. that King of the Hill screen, but you're talking to the Democrats and you're like, uh, you're not making the carceral repressive state apparatus any better. You're just making nominally progressive policy ideas worse. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But I mean, like, but, you know, we also should be looking at, you know, the victories that we've seen. Over the past week, where on Monday, October 17th, workers at the Exchange uh, Street Starbucks in Portland, Maine, voted 10 to 3 to unionize, becoming the 250th Starbucks to do so nationwide. 
Then the Woo. next day, we uh, have the Eastview Mall Starbucks in Victor, New York, that voted to join the union. Uh, with all eight workers unanimously voting in favor, then Thursday the 20th, we have workers at an Easton PA's store uh, who voted 16 to 1 to join the movement. And then finally, on the Friday the 21st, we have two more stores that voted to unionize. The Washington and Linden store in Santa Clara, California voted 10 to 5 to join and they are the 18th store in California to do so. And additionally, the 101 Federal Street in uh, in Boston voted unanimously to bring the union total to 254 Starbucks stores with the union nationwide, officially recognized by the state. Hell Man, yeah. I love that. 256. That's getting up there. That's starting to look like a file size. Let's try to hit the integer yeah. limit. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I think by, right. by next well, week, we'll definitely hit 256. Hell yeah. I think we've hit the integer limit for stories of this episode. That's right. So uh, <laughs> let's, let's transition into the meme review. That's right. <laughs> yeah. And this first one is one that I think that everyone has probably seen because people have seen the absolute clown show that is British politics where uh, we have Liz, Liz Trust, who was trying to outlast a lettuce, but this is a kind of a cutting together of of the uh, you know the kind of progression of this where on the left would you know what the the name of this this meme format on the on the left is is John it's just, it's just called guy blinking meme as far as I know it comes from a, a Twitch streamer where something very unusual happened on his stream and he just blinked in disbelief and it yeah. became a format <laughs> so the first frame is him with his eyes open looking at the uh day one can liz trust outlast this lettuce and the lettuce has little googly eyes on it and there's a photo of liz trust there on the on the pedestal and then he's blinking there's the the frame next to that is blank and then he opens his eyes and it's to the the most recent one where it says the lettuce outlasted Liz Trust. And it's just that same lettuce with like a big smile. The hands are out. There's like food on the table. There's, they've really added and there's uh, there's lights on the wall. And I just think that this, this whole lettuce meme and the prediction that Liz Trust is going to fail, especially based on her like preset policies of neoliberal austerity uh and and driving you know the the crisis in the uk to uh, new levels uh leaves us not surprised but yes in just the blink of an eye a lettuce outlasted liz, liz trust well and you know <laughs> things probably aren't going to get any better anytime soon because they just announced that rishi sunak will be taking over as pm also not a good person to lead your country <laughs> yeah i mean it, I, I don't really think it matters. It's because it's like it's Tory policies mm-hmm. that have created the problem. Yeah. And all the Tories just have different variations. <laughs> like, I feel like there should be a limit where it's like if you're the ruling party and you go through more than three prime ministers, it just automatically triggers another election because it's like you guys can't figure out the fuck you're doing. Yeah. Yeah. It, exchange control of the ball. Kick a, uh, uh, what's it called? You got to punt the ball to the other team now. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, that's right. I don't do do that in rugby. <laughs> Maybe not. Um, this next one is just like uh, one of those one of those dialogue uh, memes. It's just like a text only meme on Twitter, and uh, it is by uh, God. I can never b- brow tweeting. 
Yeah. I think so. Yeah. Yeah. All right. I got this one. Usually when the words are all smashed together like that, my brain can't parse the where the where they're supposed to be separated. But anyway, to the actual text. Uh this conversation is between a friend and me. And so the friend is uh how says, How's the Amazon job? Me. Can't complain. The friend. What's the beeping collar? Me tearing up. Can't complain. And just <laughs> like I think that this really highlights uh, you know, the way that people feel at work in many ways. I mean, like Amazon really is a absolutely terrible company to work for and and this kind of like coercive stuff that's been going on and we've been reporting on for a long time is is really apparent, but also I think that this is in a lot of places where people do feel like they are just not allowed to say anything about how bad things are. Well, I've had a lot of jobs where I got pulled aside by a manager for complaining a little bit too loudly on the floor or while I was doing a task or something. And uh, I got to tell you, there is unfortunately a lot of energy in this country where people are like, yeah, it should be against the rules to complain. You need to take micro sweat pledge and lift yourself up over a fence by your bootstraps, (laughs) blah, 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 you know? Yeah. So this next one, I appreciate this format. (laughs) This next one. Because not only is this scene actually funny, I appreciate that they changed the like image, like aspect ratio in every one <laughs> yeah. of these, so none of them look the same. <laughs> so this is the the scene with uh, the two bobs mm-hmm. and uh, from Office Space. The guy the whose movie. name, I, yeah. This is, so this is from Office Space, and this is where like they bring in the management consultants who are coming in to talk to all the workers to figure out who they should lay off. And so you've got the two bobs with the, so what is it you do here? And you've got the guy responding, "Uh, I'm a landlord. I provide land for people to live. So you created the land. Well, no, the land already existed. Oh, so you manage the property. Technically, I I have a property management company that does that. Sounds like the economy could run without you. I'm an investor. I invest in land. Stop being a communist. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, that, that, that scene is, is very funny. And the escalation there is, I, I just liked the way that this conversation went down and also, you know, fuck landlords. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. And, uh, this this one really uh you know I actually modified this one cuz there's a there's a the version originally has uh you know a a kind of male centric version and so I just I edited one little thing in it because I also do role playing games and I'm not one of the boys uh <laughs> so so this is uh you know the DM says uh you enter the town you notice the disparity of wealth between the moneyed and the working class and then it's me and the other players and it's just a photo of Lenin talking to uh, workers at at a table basically planning a communist uh, revolution which is uh, I think that a lot of people who uh listen to this show and also do role playing pod or role playing uh you know just games uh, could really relate to this. Yeah, I also love that in this depiction, Lenin has an extremely long, pointy chin. I want to rank Soviet artists by how long, lengthy they depict Lenin's chin. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Yeah, I just liked it a lot. This last one, I'm going to be honest, I'm mostly curious about how, because I saw this one, this is actually from the same person. Mm-hmm. Oh, wow. Um, We're really highlighting this person's tweets today. I didn't the, even realize. Uh, like, 
I'm just like, how did they type this upside down? Oh, <laughs> uh, if you if you're ever on Twitter or Facebook and you want to have upside down text, bold text, italic text, you just type in like upside down text generator into Google and it'll take you to like Lingo Jam is one of the websites. There's a few <laughs> other ones. You just type in what you want and it gives you a Unicode version of characters that look like your text oh, okay. upside down or bolded or whatever. Because this one starts out and you look at it and you're like, wait, is this in another alphabet? <laughs> yeah. Because you look at it and you're like, I, those look kind of, and then it takes you a second. You realize, oh, wait, this text is upside down. <laughs> and it says turtle colon help. <laughs> but it's all upside down and just me here you go a turtle thanks <laughs> which yeah the second line is the t- the turtle being right side up because turtles when on their back require assistance i just like this one because it has no <laughs> pictures but it gives you such a visceral like mental image of reaching down and flipping over a turtle <laughs> <laughs> that's exactly that's right. why i liked it too it was it, it's it's got a very visual element to the text Mm-hmm. So I'm just going to make like the meta meme where it's this, but it's on the cover of Mutual Aid, a factor in evolution. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. That's right. <laughs> Fields, factories, and workshops, and turtles. Uh- <laughs> <laughs> That's, That's right. right. <laughs> well, with that, we are going to wrap the episode, and we want to thank everybody who supports our show. And if you don't uh, right now, you can at patreon.com slash workstoppage. You can give us $5 a month and get access to all of our overtime episodes. We just went over the Weavers of Revolution, which is the story of how workers in Ch- in Allende's Chile uh, seized a factory and you know turned it over to worker control it's a really great story and you can hear that uh as a patron if you can't afford to become a patron jump in the discord message one of the admins and let us know and we'd be happy to hook you up with that uh also follow us on all of the different places you can find all of those links uh at workstoppagepod.com or you can just follow john at facebook villain and you can follow the pod at work stoppage pod you should also listen to beep beep lettuce and red game table as i kind of mentioned earlier we do a little bit of role play podcast stuff over there Mm -hmm. and as always labor peace is not in our interest and solidarity forever solidarity everybody solidarity everyone the reason that I'm not a nihilist is someday I want to live like in Star Trek. And I know that we'll never build starships until we tackle poverty, war, and hardships. So we fight overnight and over lifetimes, organized for that warp drive. And of course, I realize that we're a long way from it. But what better reason to start running? Because if you're going to do the work, then it's got to be honest. Because the best of us have all already been forgotten. And if you're in it for the recognition, I hate to disappoint, but if you do all right, you'll never get it. Yo. We don't remember the farmer, we remember the fruit We don't remember the inventor, we remember the boom The impact through the eons
darkness to be afraid of so it's a good thing we are not afraid there is no superman in that phone booth there is no rewarding our faith there is no one who can save us so it's a good thing we don't need to be saved there are no starships in low earth orbit no aliens to save us from ourselves there is no voice willing to speak for us so it's a good thing we know how to yell there is no chosen one no destiny no fate there's no set thing as magic there is so it's a good thing we brought matches. Hey, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs>